This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Liverpool Echo. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Dan O'Donoghue and on this week's episode, we speak to York Central MP Rachel Maskell about HS2 and her hope of bringing the HQ for Great British Railways to her city. Well, there is much in the IRP and we have to recognise the scale of investment. However, if you live in places like Yorkshire or the North East, then clearly you lost out. And the proposed journey times that would have come forward with HS2 and Northern Powerhouse Rail, they clearly will be longer than predicted. So, of course, people in the, the North East and, and Yorkshire are very frustrated that that long promise has been broken. And Rob Parsons speaks to Naomi Timperley, the co-founder of the Manchester Tech Festival, about the city's status as a technology talent hotspot and how we close the digital divide. I think it was highlighted more so during the the pandemic. So the fact that, you know, obviously um, Manchester has, um, and Greater Manchester has some of the most deprived areas in the UK. Um, You know, we had um, Marcus Rashford supporting um, young children to, to be fed. Um, but we also had um, a lot of um, young young children and parents trying to support their kids to do the homework online when they didn't have internet access um, and they didn't have the hardware to do it. But first, our main item today is of course the local elections. In all, more than 4,000 council seats are up for grabs across the country. And in the north, voters in Bury, Rochdale and St Helens will be re-electing their whole councils, while in places like Manchester, Newcastle and Barnsley, a third of seats will be up for grabs. I'm joined by Liverpool Echo political editor Liam Thorpe, Rosie Lockwood from the think tank IPPR North and Newcastle journal editor Graham Whitfield. Welcome all. So... As ballots continue to be counted and results stripping, the elections have been cast as a turning point for Labour and a humiliation for Boris Johnson. Now, that may well be true in London, where the Tories have lost symbolic councils like Westminster, Wandsworth and Barnet. But looking further north, the picture doesn't perhaps sit so comfortably into that narrative. Um, I think you can actually see on screen now uh, the current state of the parties. Um, Rosie, I just wonder if we could come to you first. I mean, I just wonder what your kind of general read on the results was so far. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, the picture in the north of England is quite different to, to the picture um, in London and in the rest of the country. And that really shows that um, that these elections are not a, an all out victory for any party. Actually, they're a real mixed bag um, in the north of England with, um, for example, the Lib Dems um, taking Hull. Um, and so it's not been, um, despite uh, uh, some positive news for Labour um, in in uh, uh in Cumbria, um, it's it's not a clear kind of cut. Um, there's no clear winner in the north of England, and that really shows that places matter in their own rights. Um, and it's not always possible to draw national conclusions um, solely from local elections for lots of different reasons. Um, uh, and one of them being that that people vote um, based on local issues as well as as national issues. So there are local issues at play here too um, when we're drawing conclusions from. Um, from these results. Um, uh, what we can tell from these elections, actually, is that parties need to do more. So no party in the north of England has clearly set out a vision to narrow the inequalities that are at the top of, of people's minds and, and, and to tackle the cost of living crisis that is, is at the forefront of, of what people are experiencing. Um, and, and nobody's convinced the whole country and the whole of the north of England that they've got the plan. So on the Conservative side, They've um, uh, they've not delivered on levelling up. Um, levelling up hasn't um, convinced people in the north of England. The rhetoric hasn't matched the reality. And then Labour haven't provided the alternative that, that will convince people that they can narrow um, inequalities. Um, so there's, there's more work to do on, on both sides. Um, so, Graham, I was going to ask, obviously, in the northeast, it's uh, quite a mixed bag as well. Um, you've had solid performances, obviously, in Newcastle, in North Tyneside, Labour took the Tory leader's seat, um, but Sunderland and Hartlepool, the results weren't brilliant. Um, I just wondered what your kind of general sense of the uh, picture was up there. I think, Dan, having been telling people for the last two years how the North East was now the hotbed of, of, of where the political action was after all those sort of traditional Labour seats that went Conservative. I'm, I'm on the podcast today to tell you that nothing very interesting happened in the North East last night, which is... Uh, <laughs> I realise that's that's not a great habit. You, you know, Labour held up well in, uh, like you say, Newcastle, North Tyneside, Gayside, lost, I think, one or two seats in each, South Tyneside. Um, the one place that could have been interesting was Sunderland, where there were, you know, Labour was potentially in danger of losing its overall control. It didn't. Um, Sunderland and Hartlepool are both, you know, Brexit-y areas, uh, for want of a better word. Um, and I think Sunderland, the, the way that the council leader there is, is describing it, is, you know, they sort of seem to have stopped the rot, which has been coming over the last sort of four or five years, if not a bit longer. Um, so I suspect they're reasonably happy to have not lost there, and they didn't come back close to losing either. Um, Hartlepool is a, is a, you know, it's always a bit of an outlier, uh, overall, no overall control. I, I, I know Labour are saying if those results were replicated in the general election, they, they'd be able to take Hartlepool back. So, um, so yeah, it was a mixed bag, um, you know, a, a possibly side issue. But, you know, one of the interesting things was uh, in South Tyneside, it, most of the gains were, were lived there. There's one, one or two in, in some of those areas. South Tyneside saw three greens, um, which I, you know, I didn't see coming. Um, I, I thought that could be a thing in other parts of the region. I didn't see it coming in South Tyneside. But they're now the biggest, uh, apart from the Labour group, obviously. 
they're, they're the main opposition and they've got six councillors in South Tyneside. So, you know, it's, a, it's a, quite a thing there. Um, but yeah. Do, do we think, you know, people in Labour HQ would have woken up this morning? Obviously, they will be celebrating those kind of symbolic wins in London. Um, you know, obviously, they've been Tory areas for a very long time. But do you think they would have traded perhaps some of those wins for more of a recovery in some of those kind of leave voting areas that you mentioned there, Graham? I, I don't know what you made of that, Rosie. Do you, do you think Labour, you know, is is it enough to to show that they're on the they're on the road to recovery here? Um, it's a start, um, uh, but it's 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 probably not enough um, to to convincingly go into an election, a general election, and um, and be confident of of being the main party um, of government. Um, so there's there's clearly uh, more work to be done. And actually, um, uh, I think Cumberland wasn't um, it wasn't considered to be in the bag. For Labour, but actually, some of the parliamentary seats that come under um, under Cumberland, like Copeland, you would expect that would have to be won in order for for Labour to win a general election. Um, so, uh, where the gains have been made, um, they're in areas where you know, of course, they have to be won in order for Labour to um, to be able to to become the party of government. So. Um, uh, I would imagine people in in Labour HQ are, um, uh, are probably pleased about London, um, but now they're going to have to look at the north of England and reconnect with uh, with communities that they've um, they've kind of disconnected from um, uh, uh, over the last few years, um, and and really work on um, speaking to those communities on their terms. Um, and convincing them that um, that they're they're the party for them. So um, I I imagine they will be um, optimistic, but really cautiously so uh, today. No, I mean th- that all said, I mean we obviously can't escape the fact that it was a difficult night for the Tories. Um, you know, many councillors who've lost their seats may well be be reflecting on today whether the prime minister is still this you know electoral asset that he once was. Um, just to put it into perspective, you know, they've they've lost control of 10 local authorities across the country so far, and almost 200 Tory councillors have been unseated. Um, I think, as you touched on before, Graham, you know, pollsters have extrapolated that if this performance was repeated uh, in a national election, it could mean another hung parliament. Um, I just wondered what you both made of, of how CCHQ might be approaching this today. Um you know, obviously, it's it's only the picture's only going to get worse as we go on this year as the cost of living continues to bite and bills are continuing to go up. Um, what do you make of it, Graham? What do you make of the the thoughts and the and the, and the fears going around CCHQ this morning? Well, I wanted to pick up something that Rosie raised, which is the Cumberland thing, which I think is really interesting. And, and when I said those areas that that were really are quite sort of full of marginals in the northeast, those are the ones that didn't sit yesterday, which is County Durham and Northumberland, which have you could argue quite similar you know mostly rural areas with with odd bits of sort of urban uh, urban seats as well if that cumberland result had been replicated in county durham and northumberland you know you could be talking not just about two or three tory seats turning around across the north but maybe you know like getting on for a dozen so those sorts of places like Blythe valley northwest durham bishop auckland maybe some of those places on the on the fringes of teesside which didn't sit either where the Tories did well in 2019. So, yeah, I, I think 
what, what both Liam and Rosie have said earlier is, is right. No, you know, no one's won this outright. There's a lot still to be played for. But if I was uh, one of those Tory MPs who won in 2019 unexpectedly, and not sitting on big majorities, that's the thing, they're, they're tending to win by two, three, four, five thousand, I would be worried because there does seem to be a direction of travel which is not not brilliant for them at the minute. I, ju I just wanted to come back to you, Liam. Um, obviously, we were just talking about Labour earlier, but I just wondered on the Tories today, I wondered what you thought might be going through their heads in CCHQ, obviously having lost some symbolic seats in uh, London and the South East. Um, wh where do you think their heads are, are at today? There's a, a saying about the Tories, isn't it, that they're, they're ruthless when it comes to electoral success. And we've seen already some comments overnight from, from either deposed council leaders or people who've lost their seats turning around and suddenly deciding that now is the time that they think that Boris Johnson should face the, the 1922 committee. People saying that those letters should go in. It's interesting that those calls didn't necessarily come on a sort of moral basis based on, say, the Partygate scandals. They tend to come after an electoral defeat. The Tory party is ruthless, so this was always going to be seen as a, as a test of Johnson's electability. And as John Curtis said last night, you know, they are as, as unpopular as they have ever been since he became leader. So as Graham said, it's about the direction of travel. What I think people, the context that people sometimes forget with this particular election is, is it based on those 2018 votes when actually Labour had a really good night. So it's when you, in terms of when you're kind of factoring in, it's it's too simplistic to be like, oh, Labour should have done, necessarily done better because of how bad the sort of uh, saga around the Tories is. On on the balance of 2018, Labour had an OK election, decent, I would say, um, um, but perhaps not made the strides they wanted to in the North. The Tories have had some really disastrous results in, in some parts here, and, and they will be worried. There'll be a lot of murmurings going around, and I wouldn't be surprised to see a few more letters going. And, you know, earlier you were just beginning to talk about Wirral Council. I mean, obviously... Local elections are often, you know, local issues do feed into these uh, results. So we've got to bear that in mind. And that's always a caveat when trying to extrapolate any kind of broader analysis on something like this. But well, can you just fill us in on the picture on Wirral? Because that, that looked um, a bit of a an eyebrow raiser last night, Gorn. Yeah, it's um, we're, it, as a local uh, political journalist, I, I sort of pull my hair out a little bit when people try to read too much into what should be local elections. You know, we we are on the ground sort of covering the issues that are affecting these areas. And a lot of these places have very specific issues going on. So Wirral Council, just for example, um, have recently faced a, a government intervention. Um, they've, they've had to find a 20 million cuts package, which has seen loads of leisure centres be closed. It's, it's been a really, really tough time for the what what is a slender Labour minority administration there. Labour lost their majority back in 2019, went back further last year, and they went into this round of elections with the Tories just four seats behind them. They've actually lost further ground. And at one point last night, it did look like they might it, we might go into a kind of tie situation where we'd be looking at some sort of electoral pact because the Greens actually nicked a couple of nicked a couple of seats off Labour. So um, it was it was it's looking slender. They've just about clung on, and actually in some seats. This is why it's such a mixed picture. In some seats, they actually had a, re a really decent showing, um, but they did lose a couple of seats to the Greens. So it's it's very very slender. Not a disaster for Labour, but a, a bit more kind of a bit more of a backward step, I would say. Now I don't know who wants to take this one on, but um, obviously another story that we've not really touched on is the Lib Dems. Um, they, as Graham mentioned, have taken control of Hall. They've put on votes in Greater Manchester, and they're troubling the Tories in the so-called Blue Wall. Um, are we going back to the heady days of 2010? Is it going to be Ed Davy mania, do we think? 
not sure Ed Davies ever had Ed Davy mania. Um, I'll just quickly say um, from a local perspective on the Lib Dems, I think Lib Dems obviously um, are, are working their way back very slowly from that complete kind of electoral collapse that happened after the coalition. Liverpool, where, where I'm based, didn't have elections this year um, because we've moved to an, a new electoral cycle, starting with all our elections next year. But the Lib Dems, and Dan, I think you spoke to Ed Davy earlier in the week about how hopeful they are of making some serious gains in Liverpool next year. They ran the council here until 2008, which surprises some people. But on a local level, they work their wards extremely well. They are local candidates. And in, a, in, in local elections, they tend to do well. I'm not sure how well that is going to translate into a general election, personally. I mean, Graham. You know, in, in the in the northeast, the the Lib Dems for many years used to uh, run Newcastle City Council, and they've, I think they're still the opposition group up there. Uh, how, how is the party faring up there in, in these elections? Yeah, I think it's similar to what Liam said, and, and it's it, it's definitely true. Lib Dems or local councils make you know, or, or, or good campaigners do well. They know where to put their resources. So, so I, I'm in a in a, in a Lib Dem. A, a, three Lib Dem councillors and they won last night despite a bit of a challenge from a quite a good Conservative candidate which would have been a, uh, the first, would have been the first Conservative candidate to win in Newcastle for 30 years bizarrely um, they do really well in local elections in in, in, good, in parts of you know, each authority that they go for um, and then in, in general elections they generally don't come second in, in the, all three uh, Newcastle wards one of which is Joint with North Bent, I think they came third. They, they came third to the Tories. So the, what they don't seem to be able to do is to translate that um, uh, in, into into Westminster seats. They, they had Berwick uh, up here, and they have had seats in in, um, in Teesside uh, fairly recently. But they, they don't have a single seat in the northeast, and and they don't look like getting one. Uh, so that is that seems to be the big challenge to make that. Whereas in the southwest, you know, the, the very much knocking on the door of some of those seats uh, up here, I, I I don't see them translating that into Westminster success. But they they, they have a formidable local government operation. They're just really good operators, and you know, they're the ones who knock on the door. They've got leaflets. They've always got stands on the high street. They're just really good at that. Um, I don't know how they make that transition if that's what they want to do, but. They're, they're never not they're never not leafleting Lib Dems, are they? <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, I I, the, the, I get uh, these things through my door three or four times a year with them yeah. uh, standing next to a pothole, looking looking annoyed. But uh, you know, you know it works, it works on a local level, doesn't it? Works locally. It works, works really well. Yeah. I just wondered, Rosie. I mean, obviously, the last couple of years has been dominated by the Red Wall and and kind of what policy offers there are from the Tories and Labour. You know, whether it's levelling up or you know Labour's response to that. It, I mean, is there much kind of policy offering from the Lib Dems to appeal to the North? Because obviously a lot of what we hear from them is how they're going to smash the blue wall in the South and and target various, various Tory ministers' seats. Um, I mean, is, is there much from them that you've seen that may attract more Northern voters? Yeah, um, at the last um, the last general election, the Lib Liberal Democrats um, had quite a... Um, a robust offering when it came to devolution, um, which is um, a clear route 
um, to achieving leveling up um, alongside resourcing for devolution. Um, so uh, it will be interesting to see at the next general election if that's something that um, that they really push alongside this strong ground war that um, Liam and Graham have, have both mentioned. Um, I would completely agree with that. Um, so there's, you know, we say um, often in, in campaigns that you have the air war, the, the kind of the national debate, and you've got the ground war. And there's probably something to be learned from how the Lib Dems, as, as Liam and Graham have mentioned, really, really work local issues in local areas. Um, and actually, um, the other two main parties, um, uh, the Conservatives and Labour, um, arguably have quite a centralised system of, of designing policy. Um, uh, I'm sure they would... Um, disagree with me and and you know labor would point to the national policy forum and and so on but um but actually there's probably something to be learned about opening up the policy making process within parties um, and empowering local parties a bit more so that they can um campaign on these local issues and act on these local issues um in a way that has proven successful for the liberal democrats when it comes to local elections now, you know, I know obviously today is the day of local elections and that's where all the focus will be. Um, but something that could end up playing a much more instrumental role um, in perhaps the next general election is Durham Police's decision to reopen their beer gate investigation into Sakir Starmer. Um, I just wondered if I could ask you how you both, well, Graham and, and, and Liam, perhaps how you thought this would, would play out. Shall I go first, and then Graham, as the uh, as the local re reporter on the ground in in Durham, you can <laughs> you can follow up. Um, so I think it's a bit of a disaster for for Starmer, to be honest. Um, and and here's my reasoning. I think that it's fair to say that regardless of what maybe happened at that um, event, it probably won't it probably won't be as bad as as what Johnson is being investigated for, what Johnson's been fined for, for a number of reasons. But it, mainly that obviously Boris Johnson set the rules. That's the that's probably the main thing that, that, that he's then been found guilty of breaking. We still need to see if there's any further fines, potentially more egregious breaches by the prime minister or those around him. The problem Starmer's got is that he has been very, very strong and, and, and firm that Boris Johnson should resign for that very reason, for being fined over the party party gate rules for breaches of lockdown it's very very difficult if and it's a big if labor are obviously robustly saying that they they've got nothing to hide and they welcome the investigation if kirstammer is fined it's very very difficult for him to have any credibility without stepping down himself um the, I, I would argue that he is he is being he is judged at a higher level because he you know it, there's a certain thing with johnson isn't there? they say it's kind of priced in that he does he does wriggle out of stuff and and people have kind of factor that in Starmer's whole pitch is that he is better he is more honorable he is takes the right steps it's very very difficult for him to not follow through with that if if he is um if he is found to have breached that just one last thing on that it, 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 i mean we're way ahead of ourselves here but if it did come to that situation and then Starmer did stand down then that immediately throws the ball very powerfully back at Boris Johnson to say well why the hell haven't you done the, the decent thing so if Starmer was to go he could land a killer on his way out. But we're a long way off that. And obviously, we've got to see what the police come out with. I, I think that's right. I mean, Lee was probably said most of the things I was going to say that, you know, it, it's it's potentially disastrous for Starmer and for Labour and for, uh, for Angela Rayner, who was, who was also at the, uh, at, you know, at, at, at some level at, at, in, that, in that building. Um, yeah, you know, that given the 
high moral ground they've taken, rightly so in many ways, about what was going on in Downing Street. How could he not resign uh, if he's if he's fined, given that he said not just Johnson, but also uh, Rishi Sunak, who, you know, seems to have been in the vicinity of a cake for about five minutes just because he arrived early. Uh, but he said he should go. So it's it, you would see it very hard for him to, to maintain his stance of a, you know, an honourable guy, which I think he always has done, um, if, he's, if he's found guilty. So, um, you know, as Liam said, there's a lot to lot to play out. Yeah, you know, it, maybe they'll investigate and say that he, he can let him off the hook. And, and maybe that's a good thing because it, it's hard for this campaign to carry on if there's if there is an investigation and he's he's absolved for a second time um you know yep. maybe that gives them you know a break so i suppose that's the small uh bit of of, of chink of light that there is but it's it certainly yeah uh you would imagine not what they wanted today timing the timing is a uh, is pretty incredible obviously it's it's a day when when labor haven't necessarily had a, an amazing performance but they've had some success and they'll you know politics is a crazy thing but they'll just be starting to they just have been trying to try and drum up some support for that day so i'm starting to think he's building a bit of momentum and then this kind of bolt from the blue comes out i just agree with what graham said there it could go one of two ways i think that if he is exonerated by the police after a follow-up investigation after a pretty strong campaign from some organs of the press that would kind of have to have to be the end of the matter there whereas johnson's woes would continue we've still not had sue gray potentially got more more fines to come so it could go one of two ways but there'll be some very 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 nervous people in south side today Last week, Transport Secretary Grant Shapps took a swing at Northern Mayors who had condemned his multi-billion pound rail plan. Appearing before the Transport Select Committee, Mr Shapps said the £96 billion integrated rail plan would slash journey times across the North and said to suggest otherwise was disingenuous. He said the negative reactions to the plan was just down to pure politics. With me now to discuss all this and more is the former Shadow Rail Minister and York Central MP, Rachel Maskell. Rachel, welcome. It's nice to have you again. So is it just pure politics to criticise the IRP? Well, there is much in the IRP and we have to recognise the scale of investment. However, if you live in places like Yorkshire or the North East, then clearly you lost out. And the proposed journey times that would have come forward with HS2 and Northern Powerhouse Rail, they clearly will be longer than predicted. So, of course, people in the, the North East and, and Yorkshire are very frustrated that that long promise has been broken. I mean, Mr. Shapps used that word disingenuous. I mean, you would have seen some of the confusion and muddles that Boris Johnson has got himself in over this. I think he most recently confused Leeds and Bradford a couple of times when talking about HS2 and where it was going. Um, and he seemingly suggested Northern Powerhouse Rail was kind of going to be delivered or going to be delivered in some form when obviously the Department of Transport it, it would suggest differently. Do you think there's an element of disingenuity about Boris Johnson and what he's kind of said on, on this topic? Well, we've seen uh, Boris Johnson flip-flop on HS2 and so many other issues. But, of course, what really matters is how we bring about the connectivity that is necessary to boost the economy of the North. This is about the economy. It's about the environment, getting that modal shift, which is absolutely crucial if we are going to meet those challenging climate 
targets around cutting our carbon and wider emissions. So this is why it's really important. And of course, moving freight from road to rail and uh, what we're now witnessing is the shortage in workforce, but also significant delays of freight. We've we've had a, a winter of discontent uh, in Kent and, and this can't continue. And therefore, um, it's absolutely right that we get that transition. And I think it was lost in the argument around HS2 when it came down to talking about price and speed, as opposed to focusing on modal shift and in particular, how we get that transition into a modern transport system. Now, you obviously had a Westminster Hall debate discussing rail last week. I just kind of wondered if you could outline some of the things that you were discussing and, and perhaps what you made of the minister's response to your debate. Well, most importantly, I was highlighting the future of rail, what we need to be investing in and how we should be approaching that. Obviously, there's a context that Great British Railways is looking for a new headquarters and to where that will be based is a, a question we all want to answer. But um, in making the case for York, I also highlighted at what was happening in York around rail and we've got uh, some of the top engineers and planners and people working in operations in our city also working with the industry and what we've seen is a what we're calling a global supercluster of uh, rail seeing um, the way that the rail sector works so in parts of the country you've got heavy engineering like in Derby um, but in York it's the high tech high end um, of rail engineering and um, when we have these superclusters, and I highlighted um, how that then intersects with the wider transport ambition of our city particularly getting the headquarters of Great British Railways uh, uh, sorry that's what I hope but getting the headquarters of Active Travel England but also Bosch making investment around automation and autonomous vehicles and looking at the safety of that in the city and building on top of that we've also got a green new deal looking at fuel transition i was highlighting how if we intersect these different clusters we can be far more than some of the parts and i believe that's the power of how we can build back the economy level up and ensure that the the north gets its fair share and of course if you do that you'll also see improvements in our transport system. If you could just, I don't know, put it into context for our listeners, I mean, what would the headquarters of Great British Rail mean? I mean, how much would that bring in terms of investment and jobs into, into York or if another northern town were to get it, what, what would it mean? Well, the headquarters itself is not going to be heavily staffed. And obviously, we welcome all those that come to work in our city and, of course, harness the skill that we've got. But for us as a railway city, we know that we have got those skills which pull together with the operations, with network rail um, at the moment and then moving into Great British Railways in the future. It will just consolidate that cluster and therefore it will be a, a, a lot bigger it will do more um, it will have greater ambition because it is in the environment and sitting in the environment which will best drive it forward so actually if you're talking about value for money and getting the best out of the location then york is the only place in the uk which can deliver that now we've got obviously a general election coming ever closer down the track uh, in a couple of years time if labor to, were to win that election what would you like to see 
your party doing government on rail? Would you like to see Northern Powerhouse Rail revisited, for example, HS2 perhaps? Um, what direction uh, would you like to see the party go in? Well, first of all, we recognise that the fragmentation of rail has been a disaster since 1993. Um, uh, our rail has um, not had the um, interconnectivity that the service actually needs and obviously bringing things into a a national rail body is going to be absolutely important and at the centre of that but as you do that you can then improve reliability and connectivity which is what the public are calling for so particularly people from our northern towns being able to get onto a train easily to connect into the the high-speed network and that's where our ambition sits is getting our country connected and moving and making sure that that is reliable which obviously is built around uh, the ambition we would like to see around the timetable but beyond that we we must continue to enhance safety we have the the it's the safest mode of transport but also one of the highest safety records in the world on on rail and we would want to see that continue as we move forward but we've got to remember this is about the opportunity for all of those northern towns and cities to have the infrastructure necessary to build the economy to get the good quality jobs into their areas and to enable people to travel to good quality jobs and secondly the 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 second most important issue or even the the most important issue is the climate uh, challenge that we've got if we do not make that modal shift from car to train or lorry to to freight then we are going to be in serious trouble rail representing almost a third of our emissions in this country and therefore modal shift is going to be absolutely essential and moving into those new fuels um, for for powering um, the electricity that's required and also powering that those trains on the network so um, it's an exciting time for the rail industry it's an exciting time for our transport system if we get it right and of course this government is building more and more roads where we're saying let's make those investments the uk could easily once again become a world leader in rail technology and in as well as in the skill of rail operations we've got the skill sets here bringing it together in this rail cluster with great british railways is a way of really and what i was saying in, in the debate is this is an exportable product too so this isn't just something that's going to be about homemade in britain this is going to be about how we see transportation transformed across this earth and finally it's uh, obviously the local elections this week i just wondered you know has this whole row over the durham beer gates as it's now been dubbed uh, damaged labor's chances at all well i i personally think what we are seeing people saying on the doorstep is where is the home we were promised i can't afford to pay for my energy bills people are really struggling out there and they're very much concentrated on how uh, a council um, or indeed a government is um, providing them the necessary support just to get through this current time. People are really struggling out there and that's why the, you know, I see in my city people are being chased out of our city because they just cannot afford to live here anymore. The developers are taking over the land. We have landlords which are charging exorbitant 
prices for housing and of course those energy companies charging ever more because the government haven't stepped in and intervened with things like a windfall tax on the oil and gas companies which Labour called for. So um, I think people are very focused on the real issues which are affecting them day by day. Of course things like Partygate have been uh, a, a distraction, it's been a distraction with the Prime Minister doing his job and of course um, it's been a very painful time as it's reopened the wounds for so many people who um, obviously made huge sacrifices um, and in order to, to, to serve their community. And they're asking questions like, why did I go to that end when the Prime Minister didn't fulfil the commitments that he was asking us to take? So, of course, these things really matter. But in election time, we've got to think about those things which local authorities do, uh, whether it's housing, whether it's children's services, care for the elderly, or indeed keeping our communities safe and clean. Now, we've all heard of Silicon Valley in California, the global centre for high technology and innovation, which hosts the likes of Apple and Google. And in London, there's a smaller version known colloquially as the Silicon Roundabout. But what might be less well known is that Manchester is rapidly growing its reputation as a hotbed of technology talent, with a recent report setting out how the number of professionals with technology skills is expanding at a faster pace than in the capital. So, how did Manchester get this new status and how could it develop it in the future? Who better to ask than Naomi Timpoli, who is Head of Growth and Innovation at the Manchester Tech Festival, which she co-founded, and she's also co-founder of Tech North Advocates, a collection of tech leaders, experts and investors. So, Naomi, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Not at all. So, perhaps you're going to start by explaining, uh, perhaps to our less tech-minded listeners, what Manchester Tech Festival is. Yeah, so Manchester Tech Festival um, is a, um, a an event in its true sense, a tech community event for the community, by the community. So it's happening uh, between the 17th and the 21st of October. Um, so it's a week-long festival, which is really highlighting the diverse talent, showcasing the innovative businesses and bringing together the ecosystem and the community. So um, presumably it's a, uh, a, a physical in in person festival this yes, year. Yes, yes, it's a physical in person festival. Um, we, you know, it's our mission to sort of establish an annual festival that represents Manchester's true tech self. Uh, but we also have a series of events in the lead up to it happening in October because uh, one thing that I'm also um, really acutely aware of is, is that you know there's loads of different um, events uh, up and down the country um, and. I think it's very difficult to find a series of events where you feel like you're part of something and you're, you're part of a community. So anyone that's coming to any of our events during that week, whether it's a meetup or whether it's a, a you know an event in the daytime or whether it's a, a partner event that they feel like they're part of something. Absolutely. And you, you mentioned that the tech community. I mean, it seems like that is a growing community in Manchester, yes. as I mentioned in the intro. Uh, Manchester, Manchester and other parts of the north are seeing a really big growth in the number of tech jobs, in some cases faster than in London. I mean, I assume you've been keeping an eye on this. How, how, how has this happened? What, what are the circumstances that have allowed uh, Manchester's sort of tech community to grow in this way? Well, just, just to sort of give you a bit of context here. So Manchester is Europe's fastest growing tech city with an economy worth an estimated 5 billion. 
uh, employing 58,000 people in more than 10,000 businesses. So size-wise, it, it, it's big. Um, you know, Manchester City Council, um, who we are um, supporting in their digital inclusion um, team, working closely with them, um, Manchester Tech Festival really is acutely aware that actually, yes, we are, um, some people are saying we're the second um, tech city in, in, in the UK, um, but we, we still have a, a vast um, amount of people um, in, in, this, in the city and, and, you know, in the wider um, sort of greater Manchester community that, that don't have access to the internet and they don't have access to hardware. So we've obviously got, you know, a lot of uh, poverty is digital poverty as well. Um, and that, that's something that we're trying to um, support and because there are still thousands and thousands of people that are digitally excluded. Um, and, you know, that goes in hand in hand with social uh, exclusion. But also, um, I think it's really important to ensure that the the workforce in the in the digital sector uh, reflects the diversity of the city as well, which is you know something that's been really important to us and why we have such a, a diverse advisory board um, as part of the festival. Um, you know, we have learned from the likes of Stuart Clark at Lee's Digital Festival, who has really uh, been fantastic with his time. Um, Antonio Tombani from Tech Week Humber um, and Yanis from uh, Birmingham Tech Week. So we, we, we've, you know, it's happening in, in lots of different cities. It's great having all this, um, you know, tech and fast growing businesses. But ultimately, there's going to be a, we need a talent pipeline there. And that starts with young people. That's interesting. And that brings me to a, a, another question, which we, we was raised on last week's podcast. We were talking about uh, post-16 education and how uh you know are the, the colleges and sixth forms are able to produce young people who have the skills that industry uh industry need to create the jobs and you know build the workforce that you're you're describing i mean i know um helen marshall from the university of Salford was saying last week that in greater manchester there are thousands of vacancies in digital jobs yeah. which i guess shows how many jobs are being created but also it's a, an issue isn't it that yeah. that people with the right skills are proving hard to come by i mean how do we how do we solve that problem or is, is that something that people in the industry are already uh, wrestling with yes it, it is and there's lots of people that, that that do a lot to support this um but I think it starts uh, beyond, you know, way before people get to the age of 16. So just to give you a, an example, and, and anybody can do this, is I, I put time um, away every month to, to um, you know, work with um, schools, colleges and universities. And one of the things that I see is that, um, so I'll give you an example. I went to um, my local high school um, in Sale um, a couple of weeks ago. And I did a couple of assemblies um, just talking to them about the, the tech sector um, in Greater Manchester. Um, but also the first slide that I had was a, a number of different um, job titles. And most of the young people who were aged between um, 12 and 16 didn't understand what some of the job titles were. And they weren't all completely techie techie because let's not forget that actually the tech sector isn't just about coding. Uh, we also need people who are good at communication. We know we need people that can sell. We need people that can lead teams. There are lots and lots of different roles. And what was really uh, apparent is, is that all the roles that I was talking about, um, you know, I think there's, there's a, a sort of 
maybe uh, a chasm in in the careers education that, that some of the careers educators perhaps don't know about different roles that are happening you know let's also not forget if we sort of go back 12 years uh, or even 20 years there are jobs now that didn't exist 20 years ago and it's going to be the same in five years and 10 years time um so it's quite difficult to be able to sort of bring that into the curriculum but i think there are certain things that you can do and it's really important that people from the tech sector um, go into schools and colleges and talk about the different roles and talk about the opportunities and the skills that you need. Yeah so we the people in the tech sector shouldn't just be waiting for the education system to no, solve the problem for you. They've you got to, to be, be part of it. That's yeah. interesting and um, so I mean looking at the the issue of uh, you know the kinds of people who go into tech jobs from a, another angle obviously yourself and uh amy newton i think it was who who founded the tech uh, manchester tech festival both yeah, women yeah. but um I, I think it's fair to say that technology still remains a relatively male dominated field i mean maybe, maybe you correct me perhaps it's not so much these days i mean no, it, still it, is. It, it, it still is, is. <laughs> and so with that being the case what yeah. is enough being done to encourage women into into these tech jobs um, I think it, a lot, a lot is being done, but it's it's still difficult. I think role models are really, really important. Um, I think if you, you know, again going back into schools, uh, even if it was at primary age, um, just sort of making sure that actually, um, you know, women are um, allowed to sort of see the different, um, you know career paths that are available to them in the tech sector but if you go back to the 70s there was probably more women working in tech than there is now um and that's you know why that's happened um well there's, there's probably a number of different reasons but you know it's still figures wise really really low um and actually i think it's important to have um you know men championing with more women in tech um but also it's making sure that actually, um, again, employers going into schools um, and, and talking to, to, to women and, and role models, role models are so, so important. And, and I think um, one of the things, that, again, going back to Manchester Tech Festival, it, it's for everybody. It, you know, it's not just for people that work in the tech sector already. It's also for people that are looking to get into the tech sector. Um, but those role models are, are so important because if, if women don't see other women like them in these type of roles um they're not going to want to work in the tech sector that's interesting and you you mentioned earlier the issue of uh access to digital devices amongst mm. the population at large i mean what 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 is manchester tech festival doing to support sort of digital inclusion allowing everyone to have access to uh, the digital devices they they need to get on in life okay so so th there's a couple of things that we're doing um to support um the city manchester city council um in particular um so you know we're we're working with um various different organizations to get hardware donated but the thing is you can't simply get a, a laptop from someone and donate it to a young person that laptop has to be completely cleaned uh, internally as in everything wiped off and starting again um so that that's you know not a quick process unfortunately and there's a cost involved in that um, and then another thing that we're doing is a campaign called A Thousand Hours. 
So um, going back to, um, you know, the fact that I was, was saying about, um, you know, people from the tech sector going into schools, even if one person can donate one hour a year, that's going to make a big difference to somebody. Um, you know, whether that is their career choices or whether that is perhaps them thinking about, um, you know, what GCSEs to do. Um, but really going into schools and, and donating, even if it's an hour, if we can get more and if we can get a thousand hours, um, in the run-up to the festival and during the festival, that that would be a, a really amazing achievement, I think. Absolutely. And, I mean, the digital divide, obviously we heard a lot about it during the pandemic, didn't we? Because it was a, a yeah, huge yeah. pressing issue. But presumably it remains an issue even post-pandemic that there are you know, still a pretty big section of the population don't have access to uh, to a, a digital device. I think it was highlighted more so during the the pandemic. So the fact that, you know, obviously um, Manchester has, um, and Greater Manchester has some of the most deprived areas in the UK. Um, You know, we had um, Marcus Rashford supporting um, young children to, to be fed. Um, but we also had um, a lot of um, young young children and parents trying to support their kids to do the homework online when they didn't have internet access um, and they didn't have the hardware to do it. So you have some children, um, maybe two or three children, um, sharing their parents' smartphone. And and some, if you haven't got a smartphone, you can't get online at all. So, you know, that is is not good. And, and you know, if we're talking about sort of the, the future's prosperity of Manchester, um, and us enabling the sort of digital economy and ecosystem, these young people are, are part of that. And I think that's something that we, we need to remember. Naomi Timpley, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons and Dan O'Donoghue and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. See you next week.